Welcome everyone to Politics Express, the Postwriters Politics Podcast. I am your host, the Postwriters Politics Editor, Lars Emerson, and this episode we're talking about NATO expansion. Then we'll end, of course, with our In Our Lifetime segment. So let's dive in. With me today to discuss is our favorite foreign policy expert, Dan. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you for having me. I like how I've been upgraded to favorite status already. This is <laughs> You're, I, quick moving. Would you prefer I say only foreign policy expert? No, no, no. no I'll, I'll take the favorite status for now. Yeah. So let's let's dive right in, man. Uh, NATO. NATO is obviously in the news a lot recently because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine or... Uh, whatever they want to call it a special military operation right do you can you give me like a quick overview and purpose of nato and like its general history so originally it's all stemming from world war ii right so you have massive conflict that's the big europe's one de- yeah it's the big one uh europe's decimated and then this is kind of in line with the emergence of what you have that becomes like the eu you have it all this westernizing uh kind of coming togetherness of like the marshall plan a rebuilding factor so nato in itself is very much a collective security organization going we just had a massive war we don't want this to happen again how can we kind of integrate in a way and band together in a way that's gonna hopefully prevent that from happening and then with how things kind of worked out at the end of the war You obviously have um, the emergence of the Soviet Union as a a major player in Europe. So then you get this natural butting of heads um, that eventually comes to the Cold War uh, in the subsequent decades. And then the Soviet Union falls. What what happens to NATO then? Does it like lose its purpose? Because it's only, yes. correct me if I'm wrong, it has only been invoked once, and that was actually after that. Yes and no. I think during the Cold War, it was, it was such a a large, the, the Cold War itself was just such a large event in the, in the foreign policy minds of the West, in NATO, in, in the individual countries, that it became kind of inextricably linked to... NATO and the the Soviet Union, but in reality, uh, there's never been a specific tie to the Soviet Union. So it wasn't a, we're making this alliance to counter the Soviet Union. That being said, uh, during the, you know, the post-World War II decades, the Soviet Union became the the main threat to Western stability. Uh, You had them, you know, obviously occupying Eastern European countries, you had them promoting, uh, you know, coups in Eastern European countries. They put pro-Soviet dictators in. So obviously that was kind of the main factor. But with the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a kind of, I think, what happened in most Western countries, definitely in the U.S., definitely in Western Europe, which was, well, what now? Uh, and that kind of got answered with, you know, obviously terrorism, 9-11, uh, and NATO did pivot to a degree, uh, but I think it's definitely been kind of a, a an exercise in finding their footing of what is the purpose of NATO without that Russian threat, which 
I mean, obviously, <laughs> we, we talked about this, uh, you know, previously. Uh, that question's kind of been answered again in a very, you know, you know, co- coming back home manner of, well, Russia has decided to re reassert itself a bit. Right. So the 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 core part of NATO is Article Five, right, which is this uh, agreement that if a country invokes Article Five because it has been attacked by someone outside of NATO then all countries will come to their mutual defense. Um, that's like the meat and the potatoes of what the agreement actually does, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of lofty kind of diplomatic jargon of different things. It's pretty much integration. They're, they're, they're formalizing their alliance and going, yep, we're allies. We're going to treat each other a bit more nicely on the world stage. But Article 5 is the, when it comes down to it, a, co- a collective defense organization, Article 5, is if you hit my brother, I'm going to hit you back stronger, you know? Right. Uh, so very much the, the main the main purpose of NATO. Here's, here's a question that just occurred to me. If, <laughs> if the United Kingdom invades Russia, yeah. because that is not an attack on the United Kingdom, does everyone else get to, like, sit back or do they have to do something? Like, does this cut both ways, is I guess what I'm asking. I mean, technically speaking, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a unique situation, right? Um, yeah. As far as I'm aware, and I think as far as probably the, the understanding would be, uh, it is a, a defensive treaty. It's okay. not a... It's not a... Yeah, it's not a... If one member decides to go rogue, and I think you can see that uh, a good example actually highlighting that would be, like, the Iraq War. Um the oh, U.S., yeah. obviously, a major part of NATO. Uh, the U.S. goes, yep, yeah, Iraq is a threat to our security. They outline kind of their reason to go into Iraq. And a lot of NATO members were very clearly going, nope, this is not something we're getting involved with. Um, so it's very much a, a defensive posture to it, going, if someone attacks us and we're a victim, uh, and it's unwarranted and it's on, you know, a right. non a legal manner in a sense and not international uh norm attack this is something that the whole alliance will jump in right okay so let's let's talk about nato nato expansion because that's that's really what this podcast is about so we talked about what nato does what it's for the mutual defense nato expansion involves you know bringing new countries into the fold so you know you add uh ukraine is a great example you had Ukraine, yeah. and then this attack by Russia on Ukraine, in theory, they could then invoke Article 5, and the entire NATO organization has to go to war with Russia. Um, yeah. What are the pros to NATO expansion? Because <laughs> that's what it's been doing, yeah. right? It's not yeah. been shrinking. It's been growing. So you, the the biggest kind of tranche of them going up this is like our next cohort if that's uh, for lack of a better term Mm. so you have really in that how you you mentioned the post kind of soviet realm so once that i guess yeah iron curtain kind of fell right and eastern europe opened up and they could more freely interact with the west that's when you get the largest kind of block of countries going so from like the late 90s to mid 2000s you have Mm. like I think probably close to 10 countries um, 
all joining up and this is like a, a rapid expansion and it's all focused on Eastern Europe. So I think the, the benefit to this is twofold. Um, the main one is stability. I think that's you know the main purpose of NATO is collective defense and stability. Uh, so the more people you have playing by the rules of hey, we're allies. We're not going to we're not going to be you know being militaristic towards each other. We're in this group. We're going to defend each other. If someone comes and attacks us from the outside, the more people you get in that, the better. Um, especially if they they're sharing values. All these countries that you know of the most recent kind of joiners have been countries that have been aspiring to kind of meet the threshold of what we in the West, you know, strive for, the Western democratic kind of ideal. Uh, so getting people shared norms wrapped up is always kind of a good defense mechanism against having conflict. I think the second kind of benefit, just the, the resource capability. Um, again, a larger reach, like you said, is kind of a double-edged sword. It does open you up to other things, but at the same time, you get different resources uh, for new members. You get different kind of concerns in different areas in which then NATO can provide greater stability. And on the flip side, because it occurs to me as you, you say this, like the more countries we add, the more risk there is that someone pisses someone off and a country invades one of them. So I, I, I don't know, what are the cons to adding all of these countries to NATO and continuing to add countries to NATO? Like you're saying, a, a potential con, which is a, a significant one, and I think one that will definitely touch on a bit later too is expanding into zones that are already kind of hot um, where that potential conflict is already there and how do you navigate that so that's a big issue secondly it's dealing with when when you expand these new members there's a, also a, a cultural and a just uh, an ideological divide that you start to come into and i think that's something that the eu has struggled with you kind of have that core central node of states that are similar and very highly aligned uh, which you can see from like the, the major players in Europe that are aligned with the West right so you have like your Germany, your France, your Italy, your UK all these kind of core ones which have been really since World War II that core group right. and then once you start to go out there you start getting countries with different experiences in which start to flavor the collective group in a different manner which is where right. you get butting heads which would be, I think Turkey. you'd probably say Turkey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, so that's, it blows my mind that they are in NATO. It's that's now if you want, yeah, if you want to talk about the Cold War influence on NATO, Turkey very much a a flavor of the Cold War situation, hmm. whereas things have now pivoted. Uh, so you always get, you know, w with the expansion, obviously balancing these different geopolitical situations, uh, especially in Eastern Europe, and then like obviously Turkey is very unique being. Uh, you know, a kind of a bridge between Asia and Middle East area and Europe. Uh, so, so you get that being kind of a natural butting of heads and then also kind of just the, the natural organic shift, which is inherent to all countries and all organizations. But you get the natural kind of fluctuations in terms of how countries view NATO, how they view this collective defense, and how that changes over time. E yeah. I mean, there's only so far you can <laughs> you can expand, right? I mean, uh, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but it's just there, you have so much more risk the more people you have. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's that, and also I think something you... I think we've discussed sometime in the past, a branding issue, right? So NATO, as it's labeled right now, is North Atlantic Treaty oh, Organization. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you start to get... The more you expand, you start to get into almost a, a, a comical level of, like, this is clearly outside the mandate of <laughs> right. what, your, what your name is, so what does this actually mean? It's North Atlantic, yet, you know, you have... I mean, okay, I was going to say the U.S., but yeah, and, and honestly, you have the U.S., which is, they have the North Atlantic ties, they have transatlantic relationship quite heavily, but right. if you think about it, you also have the U.S., because it's such a large country, you have a their open access to the Pacific Ocean, right? You have territories right. like Hawaii, which are halfway across the world from France. Yeah. So it's kind of inherently an interesting situation because of the U.S.'s position in the organization um but yeah you get into a situation of how large is too large right and canada i guess they're pretty big in, too in canada, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um w- would you say that you're more in favor of expansion or of kind of tempering their ambitions before we get into the fun part where we radically expand <laughs> the, nato the hypotheticals well then i, w- I won't i won't touch on it in this section too much and i think um what they've been doing now is probably the best approach in terms of an openness to members but also not doing a radical like you know what open season everyone apply who wants to apply (laughs) and we'll we'll review all your applications right like so there's a, a high kind of threshold of going these are areas where we'll even consider and of that area, we'll consider these are the, the countries that kind of meet this threshold that we've created for ourselves. So I think having an, yeah, an ability to expand, but not like ad hoc and just kind of shambolically going, you, you, you. Gotcha. So let's get into the exciting bit, which are the candidates for expansion of NATO. Um, th- there's There's been lists of countries, many of whom NATO has like recognized as like expansion candidates um, but who are like some very obvious ones for inclusion and so dan you you helped me kind of put together this list of like the big ones that uh we should talk about so like the most obvious to me and i I think most people would probably assume they are in nato but like the scandinavian countries and like ireland i'd kind of group yeah um finland sweden and ireland none of them are in nato that blows my mind Uh, the only one that i'll say uh well, both, both, there's a reason, right? So both Finland and Sweden, although I definitely get what you're saying, and I definitely agree to uh, to a degree with it. Um, Finland has a very unique relationship traditionally with Russia, um, mm. and they kind of have, and this has been something, uh, you know, I want to say funnily enough, but uh, just kind of a unique situation, right, is what you, you have in Ukraine, which is a, a a very neutral position, right? So Finland kind of was that Ukrainian neutrality situation that's floating around now before the Ukraine situation emerged. Mm-hmm. So the Soviets fought them, like, I think, either right on the cusp of World War II or maybe in the very early stages, maybe like 39 or something. And they had a weird neutrality agreement. They lost some land to the Soviet Union, and then obviously Russia took that on, and then they kind of have a weird quasi, well, 
we're not going to poke you if you don't poke us. So they have a weird neutrality situation as well. And same kind of with Sweden. I think Sweden kind of likens itself to the Switzerland of Scandinavia, um, where they don't want to do it. But it's really for appearances at this point because they heavily align with right. They heavily align with the defensive posturing and of NATO in the West. So you know what really bugs me about this? <laughs> I, I think you Go can off. guess. Finland and Sweden are both in the EU but not in NATO, whereas Norway yeah. is in NATO but not in the EU. Yeah. That just, like, bothers me because in my mind the EU and NATO should be, like, basically equivalent because it's basically the same sort of uh, acknowledgement that you are all like-minded countries. Yeah. So you get into a weird situation, too, with that. Like, you you get calls, right, for a European army. And my counterpoint to that, to, to a degree, is, well, in effect, I mean, besides the... You know, unless you're talking about literally putting all the country's resources and pooling them, NATO yeah. in itself is, in effect, a almost complete European army right. from the major powers, right? So there's a obviously a capability or a distinction there in terms of how they manage those capabilities and how integrated they are. But yeah, the the level of matching you get and the le- the matter or the level of likeness you get between the EU and NATO. Uh, it's, rel- it's pretty significant. Right. So what about Ireland? Why is Ireland not in there? Does it have I, to do with the troubles? Like, that's kind of what I, I was, was wondering. Yeah, I was... I'm was, I not going to pretend to be an expert. Uh, if I was a button man, I would say perhaps it has something to do with UK being a member of NATO and Ireland being in that kind of... Yeah, the troubles and the IRA issue. Um, barring that, the potential might just be a general kind of sense of neutrality. Ireland isn't a major player in terms of going, we're getting involved in other countries' foreign policy. They're relatively low profile on the international stage, so it may be a mixture of the UK-Ireland relationship as well as kind of going, we don't want to pick anyone's side and kind of rock the boat, so we're just going to be a generally neutral Ireland Okay, so I guess let's let's take a vote. Do we think all three of those countries should be permitted to join NATO? Oh uh, yeah. yeah, I don't see. I don't <laughs> that see. Seems issue. obvious to me. <laughs> yeah, I think with particularly how things are going now, uh, I think historically they've been quite they've been aligned with uh, the NATO kind of posturing. So there's really no deviation there. Yeah, and I saw Sweden. Uh, did kind of start talking about like, well, maybe we will, we will uh, talk about joining. <laughs> yeah, and I, I know Finland as well. There's been renewed talks of like formalizing a relationship. Yeah, with NATO. As as a result of our next country up, Ukraine. So <laughs> we talked a lot about Ukraine last time you were on the show. I guess it's pretty obvious why they're not in NATO, starting with like. 2013 and on right yeah so this is kind of (laughs) yeah this this is kind of the the shining case of why nato hasn't been or yeah why ukraine hasn't been admitted into nato right so i think this has always been the concern with expansion particularly with uh eastern europe russia's always been kind of unhappy and by kind of i mean i think 
<laughs> extremely unhappy, but <laughs> understanding of kind of the geopolitical position they were in when these new members were added. They weren't in the position to go, we don't want this to happen. It was in the early 2000s or the, the late 90s. It's kind of like, oh, this is happening, right? Uh, Ukraine, if I, if I was a, a, not to be too inflammatory, I think it's someone that they can partner with. But at this juncture, yeah, joining right now, obviously, in the, in the current state of conflict with Russia is a no-go. I mean, you, you, uh, you couldn't, unless you were willing to go to war with Russia. Not even willing, yeah, unless you exactly. wanted to go to war exactly. with Russia. Exactly. Um, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't have to spend too much time on that one. <laughs> That's pretty uh, uh, self-explanatory. But, I mean, like, 20 years ago, should we have let them in when they first started having these conversations? I think, I think, yeah, what we touched on in kind of the last episode, right, uh, with Ukraine, I think there was, in hindsight, the potential, yeah, you could be like, we could, if we would have folded Ukraine into NATO early on, right, this might have not happened. And that's a fair point to make. But you also have to look at the situation 20 years ago, right? Ukraine, while, while it's been westernizing and liberalizing to kind of, come to these standards with the EU, with NATO, it's still a, a country that has been, you know, transitioning, right? Mm. It's the, the pivot towards the West has been accelerated by Russian aggression, but it's never been, and I think that's probably one of the arguments that was made in the past. I think the first one would be you don't want to poke that Russian threat. You don't want to, you know, exacerbate the situation. And I think the second one would have been is Ukraine really ready in terms of this democratic, liberal threshold uh, institutionally? Is it ready to, to join up in the alliance? And I think that probably was a factor in going, let's you know, be a bit more reserved in terms of opening it up to them. Gotcha. Okay, so next up we have Georgia, which... Another interesting one. ...is kind of in a similar boat as Ukraine, though... I'm not sure if I'd count Georgia as being part of Europe. Would you? It's kind think, of yeah. right on the border there. It's it's. I think it's very much. Well, okay. I think it's a similar to a Turkey situation, but yeah, maybe yeah. even less so. Um, they are in a unique position, and again, so you have very much a Ukraine situation. You have a conflict with Russia, uh, when there's serious talks about. Uh, Georgia joining NATO and having kind of a, a larger relationship with the West, and then also that gets just completely squashed. Um, I think they're a good candidate. Um, I think, I mean, so they have access to the Black Sea, right? They have mm -hmm. a large coastline with the Black Sea, and that's just as much of a kind of a European connection to Turkey. The only issue, I think, with Georgia, and similar to Ukraine, is it's very much a how much irritation are we allowing NATO to, you know, create for Russia? And that's yeah. kind of been one of those things where it depends how hawkish you want to get. I'm personally a bit more open to it. I go if the, <laughs> the country realistically and, you know, the, barring the current conflict in Ukraine, right? If Ukraine was at peace and they meet the requirements and the Ukrainian people and government go, NATO something we're serious about joining... I think that that's an offer which NATO has to take seriously at that point, right? Yeah. Um, 
the Ukrainian situation now obviously makes that kind of an untenable proposition. But with Georgia, if Georgia is, again, a serious partner and meets those thresholds of, you know, institutionally, this is a country that kind of ticks all those boxes and they want to join NATO, again, I think that's a, an offer that NATO has to take seriously. It, I think it falls within geographically, although on that far kind of edge of NATO, it still falls within the area in which they're operating and they have member states, so right. there's no, like... But there are portions of Georgia which are internationally recognized as part of Georgia that are currently not held by Georgia? Yeah. Would you not well, enter just... the same problem you've had with Ukraine for the past, you know, 10 years? Yeah. No, uh, you would. And that and that's the issue, and that's very much kind of uh, why Russia has done this, right? Yeah. Uh, so Georgia was at that cusp of kind of integrating to a higher degree, and then they did pretty much textbook example of what they've done in Ukraine, right? They have a couple breakaway regions in Russia, and I, I kid you not, <laughs> this is they the motivation for war back then was the same reason of the Georgian government was, I don't know if they may, they might have not used the term genocide, but it was they were you know discriminating, they were you yeah. know attacking or ethnic Russians in these breakaway regions. And that was used as a justification to invade Georgia. So literally, yeah, a very that. much a, 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 a the textbook kind of example of what's happening now is that Georgian situation. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess I guess the lesson is admit countries quickly before Russia can do anything. Um, but let's let's talk about the next one. So the the Balkan holdouts. So that's. Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Serbia and Moldova. Why are we not admitting those? Those have been Moldova, on Moldova. This is where I'll flex some of my Eastern European uh, knowledge here. So Moldova, again, similar situation to Ukraine and Georgia, a lot less kind of apparent though. So they also have a region that's called Transnistria which is, I believe, recognized by Russia as semi-autonomous or at least semi-independent and has very strong pro-Russian sentiment in that region. So that is another kind of... I guess they're not really in the Balkans either. Yeah, it's one of those where it's been kind of quasi-partitioned to a degree. Like domestically in Moldova, it's very kind of contentious. And I know that's, again, I, I think it stems... if. I recall correctly, um, it was kind of like a relocation thing in maybe the post uh, World War II space where the Russians were moving people around quite liberally in Europe, and I think that's where you get that uh, that kind of ethnic pro-Russian um, situation. So that again is one of those ones where it's ultimately, I think, when it comes down to Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine, it, it comes down to the same thing of where are you going to say as an organization we're going to take the majority rule and we're going to say to Russia that yeah you don't you don't own these countries right they have their own right to self determination to go mm. well, this is what we want to do and how much are you willing to potentially antagonize um Georgia and Ukraine obviously a bit more because they're on the border but Moldova to, again to a degree of like there's that weird space of ambiguity of like Russia's involved, but they're not directly involved. But right. 
there's domestic turmoil. And uh, what about the Balkan, Balkan ones? So Serbia and Bosnia, right? I think, I, I, again, I think part of it is going to be that threshold, right, of going institutionally. Are they strong enough? Mm. Do they fit the? Do they align with the, the the democratic ideals, the liberal ideals that NATO is fundamentally defending? The conflict there. Yeah. But I think again, interestingly enough, right? You get you look at these holdouts. Serbia traditionally is very pro-Russian, uh, so you get there's not really a, a partitioning issue in that state, but very much a, a yeah, very much a traditional pro-Russian tilt. And then besides that, I think, I mean, Bosnia itself, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina are, are just generally speaking relatively new on the the European stage. So it's just a situation I think probably of potential membership is there, and I think it should be available, and I don't see a reason why it wouldn't be available. I think Serbia might be more of a situation of the domestic political situation. Uh, and then, as well as kind of the, the mixture of like the institutional issue of are these ones that meet the threshold of who we want in NATO? Right. So th- there's more hope for them. There's not if they can get into this a more democratic mindset. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't think there's like a. There's not a. From my point of view, there's not a significant kind of foreign policy reason in which they wouldn't be allowed in if they if they meet that threshold. Yeah. So, so our last two, one is kind of obvious, Switzerland, because they don't join <laughs> military alliances, and Austria, which is not so obvious. I think most people would probably assume they're in NATO too. So with Austria, it's a legal thing, apparently, is under the okay. Austrian state treaty, they are required to be neutral on okay. all so, military. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's, that's why they're not there. And, and Switzerland... They're not under such a treaty. They just choose to be neutral, which is... Be, yeah. So, again, I think with, like, definitely with those ones, and that's a, traditionally what, like, your Switzerland, your um, Sweden, your Finland, all of them, those countries for sure meet the threshold that NATO would choose to have a member. Right. Have as a member. But it's either domestic political situations or, in the case of Austria, which is a good tidbit to know, a legal posturing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's no discounting if they were to amend that for like right, to go. Right. Yep, we want to join NATO. I don't. I don't see any hiccup in that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so those those were the obvious ones, and we're gonna open it up to kind of our suggestions for who we should radically expand NATO to after this commercial break. It is bracket season, and to celebrate, the Post Rider is a brand new podcast that'll do for political junkies what the NCAA tournament does for sports fans. That's right, everyone. It's called Floor Fight, and each season we'll be creating a bracket that pits political figures and topics against each other until we end up with an ultimate winner. It's like a contested convention if a contested convention was held between two guys in a Google Hangout with too much time on their hands. For our first season, we seeded 72 losing presidential candidates for a tournament of the also-ran so we can finally answer the question, who was the greatest president we never had? It's the perfect show for anyone who ever wondered what would happen if Dewey really did defeat Truman, or if Palm Beach County didn't use a butterfly belt in 2000. And the best part is you can check out the seeds and prepare for the planes now at thepostwriter.com slash floorfight. See every candidate, who they'll match off against at the plane in first rounds, and let us know on Twitter, at thepostwriter, who you think should win. 
And if those references to Dewey and Truman and Palm Beach County meant anything to you, then subscribe to Floor Fight, premiering March 1st. It's available everywhere you can find podcasts and, of course, on thepostwriter.com. Okay, we're back. Let's radically expand NATO, Dan. Uh, who, who have you got? Who's your first candidate? It's like, you're in charge of NATO. You're in charge of this other country. You get to Adam. In, in, in charge of NATO, well, first off, with the radical expansion, I think we both have to agree with something. I think we need a rebrand on yes, the NATO I, the NATO I, name. And I believe you need to change the charter, too, because the charter yeah. says it can only be expanded within Europe. Yeah. Uh, or something something to that effect. But yes, you, you have complete control of NATO. Basically, I'm saying, who else are you applying Article 5 of NATO to, right? I think my my first choice is going to be Australia. Can we include New Zealand in that? I will include New Zealand with that because they're. I feel like. <laughs> so so my 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 reasoning behind this is stemming from the Five Eyes Agreement. Mm-hmm. So it's just like an intelligence sharing uh, alliance that uh, the Five Eyes Group is, which is Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. Uh, they're already at like one of the highest levels of alliance in terms of their bilateral relationship with NATO countries. Uh, and it just kind of fits seamlessly in terms of both the, the political environment there, institutional environment, and their defensive kind of reasoning and logic. I mean, they're, they're also just so... I, I mean, they share so much with... Yeah. You know, kind of the big players in NATO in terms of culture, in terms of military agenda. Obviously, Australia has a lot more trade with China than most of yeah. NATO's members. Um, but that's something they're very cognizant of. But yeah, Australia and New Zealand are very uh, yeah. friendly countries. And I don't think it's in question. And this is going to be my thing with, I think, most of these. It's like, if Russia rolled troops up on Australia... Do they not think that the rest of the world would show up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Like, there's we might as well strong, just codify that. Yeah. Yeah. There's such a strong tie between yeah. the countries to begin with. It w- it's more or less, like you're saying, it, it's formalizing things. I think that the biggest issue with this, right, is, and that it's going to be the, the natural response, is that you're opening up how we talked about before with, with the threat environment to NATO at that point, right? you're opening it up to a very distinct and a very different threat. Yeah. And that would be, as we will, China. Crocodiles, yeah. <laughs> China and North Korea, right? Those right. are the two the two biggest um, kind of security risks in Southeast Asia. And those are the ones that are traditionally now butting heads with the Western countries. Right. So by, like, uh, I think a good example of this too, which again kind of highlights the level of integration Australia already has was uh, the AUKUS deal that went through oh, with yeah. the, the nuclear submarines, right? So this is something that nuclear submarine technology is one of you know the strictest and most highly guarded secrets in the West and Western countries that have the, that capability and they're willing to share it with Australia, right? So that level of integration and coordination is already well established and it'd just be formalizing it. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I think 
That's where I'd start too. I think the next store I'd go to is probably Japan because I, um, my understanding is the U.S. and Japan do have a, or <laughs> the U.S. is obligated to defend Japan, yeah. um, post World War II, and Japan <laughs> does not have a military. I'm using <laughs> quotes uh, on that one because they're supposed to not have a military in their constitution. It's, it's but, a, a liberal. <laughs> interpretation of what that means currently right um which the funny part is i guess now two prime ministers ago uh shinzo abe went like he like really went for like let's amend the constitution let's get rid of this and then he like couldn't get it through but they still have they they still started doing it anyway right um but japan right is is definitely a liberal democracy it's also the third richest country in the world it's very friendly with uh, Europe and the United States, especially. It's another thing. It's like, I, I don't want a World War One situation where it's like, <laughs> it's not clear who's going to show up for who, you know? Yeah. Because I feel like that escalates poorly. And I feel like Japan think... is widely understood. Like, anyone, you know, yeah. messes with Japan, we're rolling in there. But I think there's also an element to, again, I think looking at China, right? This China is going to be the main antagonists in this situation in this environment uh they are the largest they're the most powerful non-democratic actor they are the ones that are you know questionable on human rights they're the ones that are aggressive in their foreign policy and then i think if there's one thing kind of to take away from nato's experience in europe which is a prime example of how you mentioned Ukraine, right? If Ukraine yeah. was wrapped up in this earlier. So if you're looking to kind of do a, a, a very large expansion, a radical reinterpretation of what NATO encompasses, Japan would be a top candidate with Australia to go, yes, this is someone that we align with. This is someone who, uh, you know, institutionally, ideologically align with us and someone who is very much at risk to a non-democratic neighbor. Right. Okay, so you're for Japan. Who, who you got who you got next? Who's your next next country up? So I got I got two controversial ones. Okay. Uh, more so than Japan and uh, kind of Australia, but if we're going all the way, it's going to be South Korea and potentially Taiwan. Oh god, you Dep- cannot do that. <laughs> you cannot do that second. I, we said we said we said radical, right? Okay. Radical. S- South so Korea, Taiwan. I'm with you. Yeah, South, South Korea is in South the same Korea. boat as Japan, right? Well, South Korea though, technically still at war with North Korea. So that's yeah, automatically we we'd have yeah, to negotiate a, weird, a little. Yeah, there's a weird legal ease there, right? Um, yeah. I'm not denying that. Uh, Taiwan again, <laughs> very much a Again, radical. Um, we, we said radical change, right? This so what I'm hearing is you want to admit China into NATO? No, <laughs> yeah. all, all hypothetical, right? But there, there's a, realistically, right, the U.S. has come has publicly said, right, if there's a, a violation of Taiwan's territorial area, we're going we're gonna to support them. Mm-hmm. So there's gonna, But we've said that about Ukraine, too. I know. I'm just saying. Okay. So... Taiwan, though, it does take, if we're looking at radical expansion, uh, in this hypothetical, I'll I'll very clearly say this, in a hypothetical where I'm not related to actual policy on this, Taiwan does tick all those boxes, right? They are a democratic country, Western ties, ideologically aligned, institutionally have 
strength there, and they would very much be willing to join an organization such as NATO or what, whatever this imagined larger organization would be. Right. Realistically, I don't think Taiwan will ever join NATO. Well, re, re, I I concur with that. Yeah. Uh, I think I think China has been very clear on its one China policy uh, and interpretation of what Taiwan is to China. So <laughs> wouldn't that would be be funny if China like you know like Taiwan applies to join NATO and China's like yeah okay yeah do it and then like they get in and then China's like yeah we've been under attack from India and we're now part of NATO <laughs> like you guys got to roll yeah, up yeah right. so there's a lot of interesting yeah you, you get into interesting <laughs> Ukraine esque situations right but very much a in the unrealistic radical a radical admission yes very unrealistic yes yeah um, but 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 they do hypothetically tick all those boxes i I think so far australia new zealand japan we add them you know maybe china and russia complain but like nothing happens nothing yeah yeah south korea i think i agree too like i don't actually i think if you got an agreement with south korea it's like okay you drop the war with the north that's you know war yeah like you can join if that's done and if they attack you sure but like i think i think the issue you have with that is going to be well obviously north korea is going to not want that <laughs> and then china yeah, but... probably would be quite strongly lobbying against it too i would imagine so it's a gray uh, area it's a gray one yeah but taiwan uh, is but, not gonna happen <laughs> yeah ta- taiwan's a definite no yeah i understand that but um, I-, I like but where South your mind's Korea going somewhat viable yeah i think my next one would be singapore in that same same vein i know they're not exactly a a, a large country but they seem pretty I mean, Western economic model inclined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they they do have a slight authoritarian streak. But um, you know who in NATO doesn't? <laughs> Turkey. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. There, there's there's definitely elements of it. Um, I do think it's interesting too. Again, in this hypothetical universe, right? Um, you do have a a lot more. In Southeast Asia specifically, you have a lot more engagement now, uh, very much a, a Cold War-esque situation. And I think by all kind of like anyone who's, uh, you know, international relations, anyone who's foreign policy kind of driven, we'll see that. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities. I mean, even Vietnam, right, which would be a radical for, for the, the U.S. psyche to go like the Vietnam War so embedded, right? But Vietnam itself is very open to defensive coordination with the West due to its general animosity towards China. So even, I mean, again, you get into situation that'd be more obviously like a Turkey-esque vein, similar to Singapore, but less you know economically integrated. But like I think, kind of staying in that Southeast Asian sphere. You have countries like Vietnam and even like the Philippines, which well, the, are very much aligned with like the 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 Chinese threat, but also are kind of floating in that Turkey space of like not 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 Western, but not where we would want them to be. And the the Philippines and the United States do have some kind of arrangement, yeah, militarily where. where we, we would come to the Philippines' defense, is my understanding. Yeah, so there, there's lo- loads of, like, again, it's just... 
I, I think it's a bit more, it's just a bit more ad hoc in yeah. Asia as it has been. Uh, and yeah, I think there's opportunities there in terms of countries who are aligned. And it really comes down to, in my mind, barring the ones that we mentioned initially, right? Like your Japan and your Australia, New Zealand. Barring those kind of ones where it's like a no-brainer that these countries fall into it, it really then becomes a an, an exercise in going, what is the threshold we need member states to meet? And yeah. are we willing to keep our, adhere to that standard or are we willing to kind of tweak it because of the, the global geopolitical context we find ourselves in in that region? So uh, in other words, is China... A concern enough to right maybe be a bit more liberal in who we let in yeah i mean i mean if you want to go back to the original like north atlantic like yeah. why not mexico man they're they're in the north atlantic <laughs> I, I think this is where you really you really get into and i, I hate to say it but in, in terms of the, the context of right like these big political threats that you, you're seeing in terms of what the, the kind of core constituency of NATO countries are concerned about, you get into like Mexico and South America are kind of just a dead zone, right? For but there areas is of general concern that they there is the Rio Treaty where there is in theory mutual defense among almost all of the Americas, other than like Canada, Mexico. I'm trying to remember, there's like a couple yeah. others that aren't in it. But like in theory, a bunch of these Caribbean and America and the United States is a treaty to it. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think there's. Which, I'm not sure it's gone. Like I believe it was invoked during 9/11, and I want to say, like the during the Falklands conflict, it was like very clear that the U.S. would take the U.K.'s side. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. That one's not quite as. Uh, but there's a lot of yeah. I, I think Mexico, you get into a situation where yeah i i don't i don't disagree entirely with it but it's also a looking at it from a kind of how nato's traditionally postured right they have in europe they traditionally have the threat of kind of an aggressive russia tying it together yeah and these in east asia you have uh, again a very large non-democratic country in china that kind of ties a collective defense uh, in South America and in Central America, that's really kind of not a, a, a traditional defensive environment right. or a, a threat environment, I'll say, for what they've looked at. That being said, you do, and this is something we touched on earlier, is looking at the kind of Article 5 and what it means. And so the biggest, uh, I won't say military, but the biggest security threat in that region is what it's like cartels drug trade that kind of thing so again it's understanding it's understanding what those threats then right. how nato responds are, are we talking about we're having nato deployments to do like you know counter narcotics in the caribbean and in latin america or like what's that mean right right which i don't know do you, do you have anyone else before we get into the uh the the problematic countries uh, for for the radical, um, I think the only one I could potentially think about, which is again similar to 
if we're if we're just looking at kind of an ideological thread tying everyone together or like a liberal thread tying everyone together, um, very much in line with. Honestly, we're just picking up former British colonies <laughs> to a degree at this point, but like a South Africa type situation. Well, um, yeah, so I, I wrote I wrote down the non-Russia or China BRICS, who yeah. South Africa, India, um, and and Brazil. Brazil maybe not so much, though. I actually think the Trump administration was like, "No, let's do it." <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. I think um, with the, with all of these, right? You get into yeah, like India, South Africa, Brazil. Those are the kind of like the big ones that you see in those regions, and it. Yeah, th- those are the, the issue with that, and I think the issue with like India again is the threat environment, right? You have India, Pakistan, India, China, very mm. much a a volatile mix, whereas the other ones are more defensive, right? So you, you Japan's not going out of its way to be an aggressor in this day and age, whereas China in that region is, whereas in India situation, you very much have a, a a give and take between India and Pakistan, India and China in terms of who's poking who and who's antagonizing each other. Right. So that's something that's slightly more risky. Yeah. I mean, India would be a pretty big get and they are, you know, the largest democracy in the world. Yeah. I mean, South, South Africa would be fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess the, the, the Pakistan thing did not occur to me with india but india would be that'd be a big get it's a very very much a there's very much hot zones in yeah. that in that area yeah um which, which i would say are more so than other nato countries who have obviously significant defensive threats right but aren't immediately like you know last year someone you know launched a mortar across the border it's not particularly happening like that right um any anyone else we missed any like really really hot take like why we should admit russia into nato or something? there's some interesting arguments to be made in terms of <laughs> rap, rapid integration of russia in the immediate post-soviet period but uh i i think i mean barring out again outlandish ones i, I think those are kind of ones that generally uh, an argument could be made to some degree in a large scale worldwide NATO, you know, rebranding. But I, don't I mean, know if there's any ones that are like crazy. If, if you want a really, really, really hot take that is obviously has many of the same problems as some of these other ones, there is like a, a pretty big democracy we have not mentioned. Is it Israel? Uh, yeah, Israel. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to step in that that basket because that's obviously also yeah, a conflict I, zone. I think that's yeah, that's very much in line with your your South Korea situation, your India situation. Very much yeah. a a state, dare I say, almost perpetually in some form right. of conflict with its neighbors. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, 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 I bring I it up. I don't want to leave yeah, any no, democracies out. It's it's a noteworthy. <laughs> uh, noteworthy uh, name to throw out there. I think, I, like, yeah, pivoting because you you you've mentioned it now a few times. So, I think this really harkens back to NATO expansion, right? At its core, if you're really looking at what we've discussed, which is like a radical expansion, right? Again, very hypothetical because there's thousands of reasons of why this is 
you know, infinitely more difficult than what we're saying, but it really comes down to the thresholds of what it takes to be a member state. Rapid expansion, does that mean just going, hey, you're a democracy, you tick the democracy box and you tick a few other kind of institutional uh, boxes there? Is that something that allows admission or not? I I feel like you should have to be a liberal democracy. I think that's the only real guide I'd set. Well, Democratic, right. <laughs> Democratic Republic of North Korea. Would have, <laughs> yeah. the, the exact acronym uh, right. escapes me right now, but they're, you know, a um, perfect candidate by yeah, name. Yeah. Uh, God, yeah, I mean, I, I hesitate to say, like, you can't currently be in conflict. I think with Article know. 5, it makes it untenable to expand because right. pretty much what that would include then depending on the situation obviously if it was an aggressor situation it might be a, a legalese nuance in terms of the treaty but very much so like in the ukraine situation if you are about if you're going to go yes we're admitting ukraine to nato it's more or less a declaration of war by right. nato on everyone else right I, I guess i mean like the ukraine thing was it was not even ambiguous it was actually very clear that that NATO was not going to show up for Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. But I more mean like a situation like, let's say Russia invades Japan tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, that is not unclear. There are troops stationed all over Japan. Is it in NATO's interest to be like, let's just like quickly, like, you know what, like add Japan because we're all going to war here anyway. We might as well include them in the meetings. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't I, I th- know. And this, this perfectly ties into what you're saying about like, the problem children in NATO, right? Yeah. It's very much a similar situation to the EU where you have members. I think what you, a good example with this is your, your countries like Hungary and Poland. Oh, yeah. Who, in the last few, I'll say few years, but it's it's been a bit of time for both of them, I think. They haven't particularly aligned with the, the ideological grounding of what nato countries generally have right right so you have this kind of a liberal trend emerging the russia buy-in for them then is a clear and present danger because traditionally they've been under russian occupation in the past they've experienced that they're very although they've flirted with these liberal tendencies and been a bit coy with their relationship with russia and all this other all these other factors right at the end of the day when Russia invaded Ukraine. That was like them going, yep, we're fully on board with NATO defending these territories. But I I think that's the issue you get. Whereas strong Western democracies, your Germany's, your your France, your UK, your America, might go, yep, Japan's a democracy. They've clearly been attacked. What is the bind for Turkey at this point to go, yep, I'm going to go to war to defend Japan. I don't know if there's a, a, a way forward for some of these kind of peripheral nato countries that have Mm. been kind of grandfathered into this grand agreement but have experienced that slide towards the other yeah well speaking of the european union we'll um we'll conclude this episode with our our in our lifetime for this week dan you you ready for this doozy oh oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) so you may remember a country left the eu a number of years ago Will anyone in our lifetime leave the European Union again? The reason this this came to mind is I've been reading about like, because Le Pen is currently running again in the French presidential election. Blast from the past. Right. But it is like a huge difference is like now she is running as almost pro-European 
not quite, but like yeah. she's definitely pro Euro now, and she's yeah. not saying we're going to pull France out. She's pivoted yeah. completely away from that because I think everyone saw how terribly Brexit went. Yeah, but I mean, it seems relevant too because we were talking about uh, you know Poland and, and Hungary and these kind of problematic democracies in Europe, and it turns out they've been able to kind of keep them in line by giving them a lot of money. Yeah. But I don't know, what, what, I think, what's your thought? In our lifetime, will someone leave the EU? I think there's a real risk of it. I think I, I think it, in terms of kind of this current dynamic we have, I think it does very much depend on what happens with Russia and Ukraine. Hmm. I think I, I've read some interesting points of view, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to siphon some of their thought on it because I, I do think it's a good point to raise, which is in this post-Soviet in kind of the first two decades of the, the 21st century, right, you have a reemergence of a, a nationalistic trend in some of these countries, which has caused that conflict with, right, like your Hungary, your Poland, yeah. who have gone, you know what, we are Poles, we're going to dictate what Poland does. And they've countered that international tie, the, 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 the EU, right. what makes up the foundations of the EU. It's going to be interesting to see then how they see what happens in Ukraine, right, of a country that was an aspiring member of this level of integration but never got there, and look what's happening to them. So seeing how that kind of gets expressed, I think will be interesting to see how that informs domestic politics, which now have kind of gone against that, and they've all kind of circled the wagons, for lack of a better term. So, so you're a yes. You think I, someone I, um, will leave the EU? I think, I think the potential is there, yeah. Okay. I think I'm going to say yes too, with the caveat that I think more people will join the EU than leave it in our yeah, lifetime. Yeah, and I, I think I'd include that. the UK too. Like I'll already give us negative one. <laughs> yeah. Um, though I guess more people have joined the EU in our lifetime, as well. See, we're already up. We're yeah. already winning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think it will be a. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, but we'll end with that. Be sure to let us know what you think on Twitter, where you can find and follow us at The Postwriter or via our email address, contact at thepostwriter.com. We like to hear from you. Come chat with us. Let us know who you would add to NATO. Let us know who we missed. Suggest some other topics for us to unpack. We're a Postwriter podcast brought to you by thepostwriter.com. Uh, you can check out stuff we work on, things we've written, and our other podcasts over there. Thanks again, Dan, for, for joining for this great NATO chat. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We will see you next time here on Politics Express.